So William Sorensen, how are you doing? I'm quite well. Um, doing, yeah, not, not bad at all. Uh, coming into my 12th week, I think 12th or 13th week of uh, furlough. Uh, every day is the same at this point. Uh, I've been inflationary for a whole three months. It's good. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> yeah, well, this this podcast is, is just going to be more make work. We're going to have to increase taxes so much for this podcast. <laughs> how are you? How are you? You well? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Um, honestly, I've been in a really great situation because I was supposed to start working at the U.S. Census right when all of this started, and then the census kept getting delayed more and more, and I kept receiving unemployment, which is about to end uh, because the United States is, like, is setting records every day now for how badly they're handling this, and they're still, you know, pulling the plug on all of on all of the stimulus and unemployment and whatnot, but I have been one of the few who's who's really just personally benefited a lot, so that's nice and extremely, extremely lucky. But yeah, I wanted to um, flag for uh, our listeners that your band, Flirting, provided the opening music, and uh, I, I know that as... As a musician and somebody who probably has heard it a million times, it's impossible for you to hear that part, but we really, really appreciate it, and I haven't gotten sick of listening to it. That's, I mean, yeah, I'm very happy to have it associated with the podcast. Love to, I mean, love to support the podcast in any way I can. I, I'm not too I'm not too sick of listening to it. The thing is, when we play that, when we used to play that song live, um, it was very different every single time. The guitar part wasn't really written. Uh, oh, interesting. So it's, it's, it's always a bit of a unique experience listening to it back. So is is what got recorded was that a unique version of it or or was that like th- that's kind of what it was officially written down as? Yeah, that's the I mean so the intro, the long intro, that mm-hmm. is just that is completely uh off off the dome. Like we have about, we took eight takes of that. Oh, um, wow. and then the rest of the guitar tracks, yeah, they're they're what they should be. But there are some like fills and there's some other bits and bobs that like you just you have to get in when you're in the studio. Like, otherwise it just does sound very robotic. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So we wanted to have you on, uh, mostly I think to compare notes politically a little bit, uh, because we are, uh, United States MMT podcast and you've been so supportive of the podcast and it seems like you are, um, an MMT or yourself in a very different kind of political context well, yeah, what was the was I can't remember. I think it was it was one of you two that referred to UK Labour as being a DSA conference. All year. <laughs> yeah, that was that was, was me. It Max? That was you. No, was that Will. was definitely yeah. Will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that that uh, was... yeah, no, that couldn't be that couldn't be more correct from what I've observed <laughs> at DSA. That is completely correct. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, in in fairness, I'm not I'm not a DSA member. I I was briefly, and I did go to one conference briefly, but just just the. Uh, I don't know. I was seeing something on on Twitter that was very like like I can't believe they put these people on the slate. What the fuck is going on? It was just <laughs> the whole thing. It was oh, and it, yeah, that's that's still very much the sort of. I mean, we've, literally in the last like in the last fortnight, we've had a slate conflict. So oh my gosh, it never ends. <laughs> 
It's a legitimate um, conflict, for what it's worth. It is a legitimate conflict. But. You know, I mean, we, we would be one to talk in saying that, that left politics in the UK is a little bit of a shit show right now. Um, but we don't want to... Um, we don't want to focus too much on intra-labor politics per se, unless that comes up in some more natural way. But we did want to, I guess, start with talking about how has the response been to the COVID crisis? Because that's obviously the, uh, the the material base common denominator. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, we need to look at the base first, then we can talk yeah. about the structure. Now we can uh, have solidarity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The interest rates, are, they are low, so we can afford some, you know, basic dignity. As a treat. As a treat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, the, the UK, I mean, we've obviously, we've been, we've returned a conservative government at the end of the last year. Um, you know, the conservative government that first came in, uh, in the, you know, in the modern times uh, in 2010, um, after the, the global financial crisis on the back of, you know, saying Labour bankrupted Britain, uh, all these other sort of, you know, the, the general sort of consensus in 2010 that sort of killed off social democracy. Um, and we now suddenly have a Tory uh, chancellor who is spending like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, there's a lot of spending going on and lots of lots of uh, difficulty for the left, I think, in terms of how it's responded to. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I mean, it's it's sort of like the Democratic Party here is constantly waiting to be able to point out when the Republican Party is doing this kind of, you know, like, oh, see, they just cut taxes a lot and increase the deficit as if it's going to be like a gotcha rather than like just totally missing that they're not referring to the deficit per se, but just like a kind of social provisioning that they just feel inherently and intuitively is irresponsible. It's, it's just like Charlie Brown kicking the football every single time. Every, every single time I was, I was quite afraid because after the uh, late election, um, we did change leadership and uh, again, not to go too deep into like intra labor politics, but Within the scope of labor, it was referred to as like a more move, a move more to the center. Uh, that is completely debatable as to whether you want to call it that or not. Uh, and I was quite concerned, given some of the people that were in the treasury, that we would sort of become more deficit hawkish. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't really seem to have been the case. A lot of the time, you know, we're sort of talking quite plainly, saying, yeah, there needs to be the support in place. And that's the same language that the government are using as well. Uh, to quote Rishi Sunak, who is the chancellor. He actually went as far as saying, you know, we'll do anything that we have to to make this, you know, to keep everyone going, to keep everyone unemployed, uh, keep everybody employed. Uh, To the effect where we had the party of Milton Freeman, uh, what was it he said? It was, um, we do not accept uh, unemployment as an inevitability, which is wild. That's wild. That's that's that is you know a complete and utter like rejection of the natural rate of unemployment. Um. It's interesting to to hear you reflect on that because the last time we talked was actually uh, you interviewed me um, yeah. for the Social Review podcast, and we reflected on the Corbin loss and and the way uh, sort of sound money politics fed into that election. And you know, I, I think it's funny to to think back on that conversation and how much the world has changed since then in a way. Um, Because I definitely think like, as you just alluded to, it's hard to get really more deficit hawkish than 
the fiscal accountability rule in a sense, right? <laughs> yeah, no, um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and moving like into the COVID world, you know, one thing that I think we've been reflecting on a little bit in this podcast, and you know, I I, I also think like this podcast is a part of that the the post covid world in a sense right like it, it, perhaps in the sense that like it wouldn't have really come into fruition unless uh we really had this momentous sort of transitional crisis uh to sort of map the new left politics onto and in a sense i think it it really demonstrates you know to thinking about the way like rishi is is uh the rhetoric that Rishi Sunak is using and then from the government and the opposition and all these ways in which deficit hawkery has sort of fallen by the wayside in a sense, like in one sense, not completely, of course. Um, and yeah, I guess if we could like spend some more time thinking and reflecting on this, just this new world that we're in and how much has really has changed in, in a way that, uh, you know, MMT has just sort of become the norm in a way that I don't think has quite fully been metabolized yet. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely in in the sort of direct, uh, ha- you know, in the sort of um, spending before taxing and whatnot. In that sense, within the UK, that is true. But I think a lot of the sort of, like the, I can't really think of the words to explain it, the economic philosophy of paying making sure that things are paid for mm-hmm. that really hasn't gone away and that's mm. a quite a large um part of whilst it's not what the government is necessarily necessarily saying now it will be in the autumn when they come around to doing a budget and it's the one thing the media in particular have been like really quite uh they've been the deficit hawks in this instance which is you know when they've been framing stuff towards the left towards labor the the sort of core question economically speaking has been, you know, how are you going to, how are we going to pay for this? Will this be paid for on a wealth tax? You know, this sort of, this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, no, 100%. There's, we've, we've basically, in the UK, we have what's called the job retention scheme. That means that any worker that gets furloughed, um, working for a private firm, they are, the government will give their employer 80% of their wages to pass on to that uh, employee the employer can choose to top it up if they want to or not. And one of the things that's really worth reflecting on, I think, for the left is that right in that moment, we basically had a very, very generous and very, very uh, sort of like the strongest welfare net possible, like in a very, very long time. And there is the question of like, why is that not being continued? Because individual crises will still occur. Right. Mm-hmm. And there hasn't been that. I don't think there has been that much reflection on it, but that's definitely one of the sort of things like that was not possible before. That's now possible. What are we going to do with that new knowledge that we can actually do that? Situating that also within like the framework of the base superstructure model, it, you know, this is might be something that's obvious, but um, that's just a clear example of how like the superstructure is fundamentally the first mover when it comes to not only like making sure that there's a there's a material safety net for people and people have access to the production process but that we can like the the pandemic can be dealt with in a way um that you know is literally like a biological process in a way that is the most fair for the most amount of people which is not to say that that's what's happening mm-hmm. <laughs> in the uk uh, certainly not happening uh in america <laughs> either but it 
as a framework, it really does go to show like when push comes to shove and crises come to the fore, like the way the world operates has to just come like it has to bubble up from underneath the ideology, even if, you know, the sort of as you're suggesting, the philosophy is still going to try and assert itself contra the reality of the way the world is operating. Yeah, it's it's really um, I mean, the, the thing that that made me think of the most is in the United States, the Federal Reserve has been basically using its its own kind of just administrative abilities uh, to to respond. Yeah, just like respond to reality, you know, bubbling up it. um it has opened liquidity facilities to accept municipal bonds uh, from from a lot of major cities in order for the cities to continue running. Um, you know, effectively exchanging dollars for them and and letting non uh, federal entities, which in the United States obviously federal entities are the ones that that can deficit spend. Um, you know, allowing them to deficit spend without having to to pay it back, quote unquote. And then we've we've been seeing that get extended to the subway in New York. Max, uh, do you want to fill in what um, what the details are for the LMF thing? Yeah, yeah. It and in these like in being receptive to these sorts of like applications for liquidity support. Um, it's it's interesting the way it contrasts to the UK in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. In a way, the the sort of income supports that Parliament has has uh, instantiated and 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 sort of passed into policy and implemented is is very different from the way like the municipal liquidity facility or all, or all the other support programs that the Fed. Uh, is sort of managing and um and administering um in the sense that the fed is sort of doing it through the back door now there's the the cares act and there's all you know all that goes with that which you know we don't want to be reductive and say that congress isn't involved in this of course congress Mm -hmm. is involved in this but there's something i think to be said about the way this 80 percent employment income support is sort of like a, a more direct taking on of the problem than uh, the f- the way we have it sort of through the back door and through the Fed and with all these holes in it and using uh, unemployment insurance after the fact rather than trying to retain uh, employment status and all these crazy things uh, that the U.S. is doing. Um, and I th- at one level, I think it allows for potentially some more experimentation, which, you know, Will and I have talked about on this podcast and the uh, and money on the left's uni uh, project and pushing universities ac- access to the essentially the municipal liquidity facility. Um, but with all that being said, it, I'm interested in like what you're talking about, William, with essentially like, oops, we kind of accidentally did a socialism, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how do you like roll that back? And what and and you you mentioned that the media is trying to do a lot of this work, which I also think is interesting in the framework of this podcast and the way that we think about culture and uh, information and mediation being a sort of central node of affecting uh, political economy and and what people would you know traditionally call material reality. But like, yeah, like you know, oops, we did a socialism. How do we roll this back? Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of core contention that's being used to implement new changes to the JRS are that we need, you know, we need to quote unquote get people back into work, which of course we don't 
really need to do at the moment because there's still very much the risk of uh, coronavirus in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the core contention has been we need to get people back into the work and the, the mechanical change they've used is the, and it's still quite forgiving to be quite honest, like mm-hmm. the way it now works I think going forward from this month is that your sort of, we have two pay slip taxes which is national insurance and income tax the government will not cover that. The employer is supposed to cover that, I think. Um, and then you can also bring someone on for like half their role and the government will pay for the rest of it. It's becoming quite a complex system quite quickly and it is definitely, uh, it's becoming more designed like our universal credit system, which is sort of, it's supposed to twist the knife. It's supposed to be difficult to access because you're not, now you're not meant to need it. You're right. not meant to need this government welfare. You're not mm-hmm. meant to need this. Um, you need to get the businesses back open. And there's a system of what we are calling the job retention bonus scheme, where there's a lot of sort of, you know, policy-friendly names for everything. Mm -hmm. If the employer retains the employee, in January, they'll get a £1,000 bonus per employee, um, which is patently, obviously, a huge, huge giveaway uh, to the biggest employers in the country. And that's one thing that warrants investigation. You know, what is the actual purpose of this? What is the sort of, what are you protecting in this in this scheme? That it has been difficult for the left to sort of confront because a lot of the left framing for the last five years of sort of left hegemony has been spending too low. And so when spending go up, there's not been that sort of nuance to sort of say, where's that going? Why is it going that way? It's sort of... Um... So there's genuine outrage in the United States that most of the recipients of, of like any support have been, you know, all the big corporations and major retailers um, and, and all of that. Uh, but it's, I feel like there are kind of two ways to, to frame that, that outrage. And I'm sort of seeing people frame the outrage in, in both ways without really kind of acknowledging that, that they're different. Um, one one of which you know being they're getting the money instead of you know in, instead yeah. of essential workers quote unquote um and in you know this this way of framing it you know it always starts with the figure right and is like you know out of all of this money that we've afforded to the economy in general right and then talking about it like it's a pie and then being outraged at how the pie is being distributed um when the Fed gave the municipalities access to a swap line, that was a righteous victory for municipal governments who do not usually have any way of escaping the kind of dynamics of balanced budgets and austerity. And yet, it very much like the logic of it to me is like, oh, that's happening over there, then it can happen over here too. And it can happen over here too. And so it's like, it ends up by analogy, you know, it's like, oh, well, this this part of the giant input-output structure got support. So this part should also get support. And, and ultimately, you end up with we're all essential infrastructure rather than, you know, starting with here are the essential workers. Um, and, you know, usually it's, I mean, it's always motivated by, uh, at least on the left, it's always motivated by good intentions of like, here are the kinds of workers, you know, care work and all these things that are normally, you know, marginalized and, and kind of looked over. But I feel like any time that you are kind of circumscribing 
which parts of the social output and which parts of the activities we as a society are affording through money. You know, when you begin with that kind of circumscription around that, it's you, you end up, you know, essentially precluding everything else, precluding the system from changing it all in the first place, precluding more expansive definitions. And in the United States, we've really been seeing that with this kind of conversation about prison abolition. I know I'm going all over the place. <laughs> um, a- abolitionists will always, uh, you know, pivot to talking in the future tense in in a way that embraces the infinity of we can, you know, we're not just going to replace prisons with one thing, right? Like we're going to replace prisons with every single thing. And that, I feel like those two kind of approaches, at least to me, the differences between that zero-sum versus future-oriented, expressly not zero-sum debate over what should we create, it's really coming to a head. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of the sort of... A lot of the response to the scheme has been, like you say, it's it's about the pie. And it has a sort of, it has a sort of echo of the uh, Brexit... Uh, sort of core argument, which mm-hmm. is we're giving three hundred and fifty million pounds to our NH- uh, to the EU. We should give that to the NHS instead. That's basically the exact same contention that's being used in this instance, which is you know we're giving massive giveaways to McDonald's. Let's give it to the uh, NHS instead. And it does it does create a sort of yeah, like you say, it's a a wasteful contention. It doesn't really. There's not a lot to grow from there. Right, and it 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 translates. Any and reduces any conversation about you know being inclusive of migrants as like a demand to rearrange the pie. Yeah. Oh, you want to be inclusive? Okay. So who are who are you going to take from? You know, how yeah, are you exactly. going to to create space for this person? Who are they going to replace? And the left's usual answer that they're very comfortable with because capitalists are so obscene is that they're going to replace capitalists. But ultimately, when we move past, you know, money as an object and towards money as an instrument of both accounting and creation, then we start reckoning with what are the new forms that we want to create, right? Like the, all of the things that we're making right now, we're making for capitalists and being inclusive of people who aren't in power right now. is not just a matter of making the things that capitalists want us to make except for other people, right? Mm. Yeah, see, it's, it's funny that you talk about the sort of uh, the sort of swap lines, because that's one thing that our councils, which is probably the nearest equivalent we have to state authorities, mm-hmm. that's the one thing they've been like crying out for, because they don't have that access to the Bank of England, they don't have the ability to sort of make that request, so it's all coming down to uh, central government sort of imposing imposing bailouts in a way and the exact same thing is happening to our universities um, mm-hmm. and that's why it's been, it's been really enlightening to read uh, your work on the uh, unibonds because the upcoming bailout conditions are really punitive and they are very much the sort of thing that you'd expect to see from this government where it's like yeah you can have your bailout you can have your money but what you're going to do is you're going to massively prioritize stem subjects you are going to crack down on student unions uh, and their free speech issues, which, of course, you know, we all know what the actual the actuality of that is. <laughs> yeah, um, and yeah, just it, there's a lot of sort of there's a lot of autonomy that gets stripped when you don't have that access to the money making 
uh, the money-making mechanisms. It, it's it's really interesting that you say that because that's something that I've been trying to reflect on, especially with the work on the uni and trying to sort of bring those demands into being at the level of university unions is the way the employment retention scheme has is at once like it's obviously I think compared to the U.S sort of hodgepodge schemes that are coming together, it's obviously quite uh, it's quite a bit better than what we have here in the sense of um, not having, you know, 15% unemployment and these sorts of things. But um, in a way, there's a because it's a conservative government uh, sort of implementing and administering this, they're able to really take responsibility. And I mean that in the worst way possible. Yeah. Um, for the whole structure of production from, you know, intellectual production to, you know, media production all across the society in a way that in the U.S. we have an almost like kind of accelerationist approach where there's a bit of chaos going on. And from within the chaos, there's perhaps some more room for some sort of more bizarre uh, kind of radical articulations and access to credit creation, um, which is not to say that I prefer this to the other. I think there's positive and in, in, uh, positives and negatives on both sides, um, surely, and especially when it comes to human suffering. But it is interesting the way, like thinking about the way reactionaries and right wingers um, operate are operating a bit differently. Uh, across the Atlantic in the sense that, you know, the Republicans here are very much not in control uh, of everything that's going on. And that's, I think, by design, right? They they have a more of a sort of evangelical kind of accelerationist uh, project going on than perhaps the, the Tories do with a bit, a bit more of sort of really defending and and uh, sort of taking ownership over the capitalist structures that they so are devoted to. And I just, I find that so interesting and fascinating for the left to think strategically about how to and where to really push in a sense. Yeah, for sure. And actually on like those two different approaches, there's a phrase that Boris Johnson has used and it's definitely been like, fo- it's been focus group to like death, but he has constantly referred to the job retention scheme as the government wrapping its arms around British business. That's like the explicit <laughs> phrase that he's yeah. used. And that's very evocative. Right. It's very, it has this, this so much that, that does invoke. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating to think about like it in a way, right. The American system has sort of begun to like get high on its own supply and start to believe a little bit. Um, at least in in a political sense, right? That these capitalist structures and the way this the sort of production process is structured is actually how they rhetorically sell it as being. And obviously, there are certain parts of this sort of reactionary right who that are very aware of of that the fact that they are wrapping their arms around big business, right? In the sense of of having the the Fed do the dirty work, as it were. And I think that the the disjunct. And the contradiction of that Boris Johnson line is is such a fascinating way to think about where MMT is situated in all of this. Because, of course, what has MMT been saying? Like, the 
the output that we produce as a society and, you know, the deficits or whatever, the real question is what we're going to do with this money, right? And Boris Johnson has decided to do exactly what the right and the center has always done, which is re- which is precisely prop up mm-hmm. big business and pretend um, that big business is the best way to exhibit agency over the production process and to use capitalists and these these uh, intermediary uh, non-productive intermediaries to do this, but the mask is slipping a little bit, and I you know I, I don't want to be determinist about the future, but I I can't help but think that it's going to be really hard to come back from that. Yeah, well, one of the interesting things that happened in the last, uh, I think it might have been the last two weeks, I think it was after, basically, Rishi Sunak did a sort of miniature budget where he announced, amongst other things, a coupon scheme where you'd get £10 off of uh, a hot food meal if bought between Monday and Wednesday, uh, up to 50% per head, called the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. That was the thing that we did because we're a very serious country that does very serious things. Um, and there's like social media graphics that say like, eat out to help out. It's, it's quite ridiculous. Um, yeah, it, it is. Um, but alongside that budget and alongside that new batch of spending, which was not being hidden at all, we all knew more spending was coming. He actually got the governor of the Bank of England to come into Parliament, come to speak to what's known as the 1922 committee, which is like the backbench Tory MPs and just speak to them and sort of all their fears, I guess is what they actually did just mm-hmm. about this new bout of spending, what it will do. Um, and actually on the subject of the governor of the bank of England, he, uh, it was, it was hilarious. He got headlines about again, two mm-hmm. weeks ago, because he made the incredible claim. Um, if it weren't for the bank of England, and if it weren't for me, uh, the government would have gone bankrupt, and it's like, yeah, that's that. Like you did your job, like you've done the thing that you're supposed to do. You you created spending. Like, it did, it did that really need to be explained? Well, apparently it did because again, it got front pages, and people were going, "This this was making a bit of furor." Mm-hmm. It's like when um, Trump initially, when he sent, uh, I, "We're gonna one up you with something just ridiculous," because of course it's the United States. Um, when. Uh, <laughs> Um, when, when Trump, uh, and the U S government finally agreed to like, okay, we're going to send everybody a one-time check of $1,200. He wanted to put his name on it because of course he did. And, you know, I didn't get mine in the mail. I'm not actually sure if, uh, if his name did end up on it, but oh, I do. Oh yeah. I, I got mine. There was a personalized letter that said like, dear fellow American on it. Like, <laughs> it was bizarre. Oh my God. Amazing. Yeah, it was bizarre. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Um, just... See, I'm surprised that I'm surprised that you couldn't get him to mint the coin. If you just said, we'll put your face on it. Well, that, that was, yeah. I mean, that was kind of the thing is like <laughs> Democrats were like, Oh my God, this is a dictator. And it's like, okay. Like, yes, he's a narcissist, and, like, this is insane and stupid that he wants to put his name on it, but also, like, <laughs> I don't know, part of me... Eyes on the prize. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, at, at least it's, like, an admission that, like, the money was created. I mean, that's what's so funny about Trump, is that he's such a narcissist that, and he now he thinks he embodies the government, so, of course, he's not gonna, 
Um, he, he's not going to use balanced budget rhetoric when he's equating himself with the government because he's God and, he, and, he's, <laughs> and he's limitless. So, of course, he can just put his name on the money and, and create it. But it was just, it was so funny because Democrats were, um, it, was, it was the exact kind of, you know, like, respectability outrage against Trump that's just like, you know, the very least of the horrible things that this person does yeah i mean when we when we had that little miniature budget we were we were expecting uh the colloquial boris bucks we were expecting that before we got <laughs> before we got the coupon i kind of wish we got the boris bucks now <laughs> well the see, thing is I, I i mock it I, I mock it and we mock that but then i do remember that my currency does have the head of state on it. Like that, that is how <laughs> right. it works here. <laughs> no, that's true. And the oldest institution in the United States is the mint. A fact that I only recently learned. Yeah. You and every American. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> um, I wanted to, if it's okay with both of you, um, switch gears a little bit to another thing that has been on my mind when we were first kind of talking about what we wanted to do with this podcast and what kinds of things we wanted to address we were first we were watching what happened in the UK with with Corbyn losing and with blue labor and all of that um and then as it became more and more clear that Bernie was there was just no way that he was going to to pull it off and so then, you know, our first episode is Critique After Bernie, and it's our kind of retrospective uh, of the loss here. I'm wondering, just kind of generally, like, what is the state, I guess, of far-right politics in the UK? Because I, I think we do intend for this to be articulating MMT as what you need to be sufficiently anti-fascist, because what fascists do is they do turn on the money supply on the terms of exclusion. And so what we see ourselves doing is pointing out the dissonance, like why why is space for people in the country and cultural space and all of these things that come from the infinity sign of superstructure and what we, what we choose to afford with our money. Um, like if money is, is infinite, then surely the amount of space that we can have for everybody... Um, is is infinite too and this of course gets back to you know reparations as redistribution versus reparations as abolition you know one being zero sum and the other being uh being boundless there's there's a growing eco-fascist sort of contingent that is there that's 100 percent there and one of the core one of the more interesting things to sort of recognize is that in conservative uh constituencies there is a small like nudge of the green vote that is creeping up and it is not to do with sort of it's not to do with their policies necessarily there is a sort of defense of our green and pleasant land that is definitely there and that is one of the things that i think a lot of the far right will capitalize on going forward but the actual state of the far right is mostly browbeaten to be completely honest with you like it's Mm. It's brazen in its physical force. It comes out. It, it we had when when we had our Black Lives Matter um, protests in London. The mm-hmm. sort of big event, the big Black Lives Matter protest, was called off because of the fact that there were too many counter demonstrations. Precisely because of previous demonstrations by BLM that sort of 
happened to also damage some I think it was one I think it was a war memorial and the verdict's completely out on like no one really knows who did that or what happened with war memorial but after that yeah the far right in the UK in England at the very least was very much out to make a display of itself and it did it was it it, it was out it was happy to make itself seen um but yeah it's it's mostly a sort of it's a street game for them they don't have very much parliamentary representation whatsoever the most right-wing group in our parliament is still the Conservative Party. Right. Um, and don't get me wrong, that's a party that, you know, has, in its last manifesto, had horrific, horrific uh, gestures at the traveller community in the UK. Three of their MPs now, I think, have used the term cultural Marxism as a derogatory, you know, in, in the usual way. Um, and... There's quite a few supporters of the uh, the Polish administration, mm-hmm. um, which is again really not mm. great. It's difficult. They're not very. I, I wouldn't call right. them particularly organized across all branches yeah. of like politics, but where they are organized, they are organized. Yeah, I mean, when so in, in the United States, that is pretty similar to where we're at. I mean, we yeah. had you know, I think that that the the far right kind of had that moment in Charlottesville a few years ago, uh, here. Um, but what we more are trying to, trying to kind of address here is, uh, what, what you called, I think, in, um, in just a really excellent article on Corbyn's loss, um, Pasokification, mm. was that? Yeah. yeah. Um, which is, you know, basically our kind of argument about fascism, about, you know, red brownism, is it's not so much to say, we're not under any illusions that, like, we don't think that Richard Spencer is going to run for office anytime soon. Yeah. Um, but we do think that, at least I think, you're going to have Josh Hawley and you're going to have Tucker Carlson and you're, you're also going to have a lot of post-Bernie left media institutions. We focused on the Bellows in a two-part episode before that really tried to do this sort of blue labor type of, you know, thing where, you know, we're, we're normal workers, capitalized normal, um, as opposed to basically all of the, all the extra people who don't have universal common denominator interests, but instead want to divert normal people money to gender reassignment surgeries and all of those kinds of things. And, um, we we see those logics like those are the taxpayer money logics yeah. uh and their taxpayer money taken to its to its extreme uh, as max likes to say you're you're not going to be able to out exclude the far right if your framework that you're using is this idea of taxpayer money that represents finite value created by real grounded workers Mm. right then like the best possible way that anybody could turn that into a populist political program would be to exclude everybody who's not a real grounded worker and of course where it falls apart is that the idea of a real grounded worker of a normal person all of these things it's all arbitrary it's a cultural circumscription and that's not to say that circumscribing and signifying, maybe circumscribing is bad, but signification in general, I mean, that's, that's what we're always doing in, in the first place. And that's what needs to be acknowledged. And our biggest fear, I think, is that the far right 
uh, rejects yeah. all of the kind of sound money stuff, which they they do implicitly in that they don't actually give a shit about the deficit. But, you know, when fascists come to power, it's always mobilize the entire economy around the cause of normal people who are under attack yeah. by enemies outside and within. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I... I okay, I, hearing it that way, I can definitely conceptualize that a lot more within the British scope. And it is really unfortunate, but, like, the sort of... Where that did manifest in the UK is it is around Brexit. That is what happened. When we were saying, you know, we give £350, uh, £350 million a week to the EU... Let's give it to the NHS instead. That's what that was. Because the EU was functionally just sort of a... uh, Yeah. It was a dog whistle to, you know, liberal politics. It's Yeah, it's the globalist, the outsider, the three parentheses. Yeah, exactly. 100% on the three... If they could have put that on the billboards, they would have. (laughs) Right. Um, That is where a lot of the left... And yeah, you correctly identify blue labour as sort of... I mean, they did support Brexit. They do have a sort of, like, tradition, family, hard work approach that is their... Normal. Yeah, yeah. just just the most, <laughs> the most normal group uh, in Labour. Yeah, well, Ma- Max was joking that uh, they should make, like, Trump make America great again style hats that say, like, essential worker. <laughs> oh, don't, they, they 100% will. I wouldn't be surprised if it already exists. Um, I think one of the... the, the core things to uh, identify there is in blue labor in sort of that space which for what it's worth is vastly overrepresented online it isn't much of a phenomenon insofar as influencing a lot of labor members or labor me- uh, mechanisms um they would be they wouldn't sort of identify with anything particularly american because anti-atlanticism is a core part of their sort of um that is part of their structure they they are quite anti-Atlanticist insofar as they're against free trade in general, and right. you know they they do lean a little bit he- more heavily on the sort of left protectionist sure, yeah. scale than I think the left protectionists in the US do. Um, but yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. That in the US, that's more concentrated on on I think the far right. Yeah, um, yeah. Especially now, everybody is. You're starting to hear that about China especially like China is our EU, <laughs> you know, rhetorically is that, you know, they're, and this is the, the whole, you know, the debt that the United States owes to China is like that exact fucking thing. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're starting to go down that route as well. The China's becoming our new EU as well. Um, because mm-hmm. we've got lots of, uh, we owe lots of money to China cause they've been doing so much investment. So, like, oh, yeah, they're so savvy. They just they keep giving us an offer we can't refuse. <laughs> I keep accepting all these Chinese bonds. Um, but one of the really unfortunate ways, I mean, there's two sort of ways I want to go about that next part is obviously there is some there is some legitimate like uh, project in leaving the EU. There are legitimate mm-hmm. reasons to want to leave that institution. You know, it, it has been terrible to uh, immigrants. The European border is mm-hmm. one of the most vicious on the planet. Uh, everything that happened to Greece, you know, the sort of um, one of the biggest examples for me of why monetary sovereignty was so important to a left state is what they did to Greece. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And it is unfortunate that now what's happened is 
So in the 2019 election, the Conservatives' uh, slogan was get Brexit done. And that means that if you wanted mm-hmm. to get Brexit done, you had to, you know, that was the Conservative programme. They are now the same thing. So if you wanted to go about that project, that is now what you're in. And it just so happens right. that alongside getting Brexit done, which at its very core, you know, if you, if you distill it way back to the original campaign, mm-hmm. it was, you know, an understandable reflex of fear against, like, if you accept the zero-sum framing, as people do, because it is the more hegemonic sort of economic understanding most people currently have, where people did go, oh, well, I don't want that to happen. I want to make sure I get my uh, my bit. Where people did have that as the public, that's now become so far extracted and so far gone that now it's, if you want to defend that project, if you want to defend yourself, well, we're going to, you know, repeal a lot of parts of the Gender Recognition Act, yeah, which is one of our core pieces of legislation to protect trans people. Um, there's, now it's, it's all becoming like, oh, you still want to do that, right? Because now you have to do this on top of that. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's ended up. And that's sort of, that is where that whole sort of strand of politics has ended up. And it's the same on the left, because Paul Embury, who is a particularly prominent member of Blue Labour, he's doing all the same sort of, I don't want to say culture war, because I hate the phrase beyond all recognition, but he's doing all the same things. Mm-hmm. He's doing every last bit the exact same way. And I, I think it's also important to then, like, take a step back and see how, you know, through the narrative of, like, Brexit and from from start to where we are now, as well as what um, both of you referenced with the China boogeyman, quote-unquote, <laughs> or, you know, on left and right, whether it's Matt Stoller or Elizabeth Warren, you know, vaguely on the left, if you want to say that, or, um, or uh, you know, or the, obviously the right-wingers and, you know, Trump and, and Tucker Carlson, is this imagination of not only like like the 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 more typical understanding of like our problem is outside of ourselves right being that first step which i think people have a pretty intuitive understanding of (laughs) but taking that a step further to say our problem which is a scarcity of money is starts from and is predicated on money coming from outside of ourselves Mm. um and when those two things sort of align and come together which you know for better or for worse throughout the bernie campaign and then you know the the corbin election yeah there's there's a real alignment of the money is outside right it's in the cayman islands Mm -hmm. it's it's um you know it's it's in banks out there rather than a public infrastructure here um, within the legal structures of you know whatever poli- political form of governance that is set up, mm-hmm. um, that's where that's the initial analytical divergence from a really inclusive vision, and and, and what we are now seeing are you know three four orders removed from that initial like causal moment of what happens when we predicate not only you know not just like a left political vision, but just a a political vision as a whole on that sort of outsider money status, which is to say, like, that's what capital is imagined to be, right? In a more orthodox understanding of what capital is, right? Capital creates money. Banks create money. Credit money is a private institution and not a public institution. And it's all linked because then we get back down to the brass tacks of politics and now we're having to defend 
trans rights and trans legal protections on the back of a program that locates a sort of subversive, anti-normative, alien structure as the root of our problems. And of course, then exclusion from that analytical sense comes back home and we start trying to push people out from within. Um, And yeah, it's just, I think, drawing those lines together in like the matrix, especially across from the American to the UK perspective is really a, a potent way to sort of understand the problem with the left in general, at least in the English speaking world right now. Yeah, 100%. I mean, one of the really, um, you mentioned, I really like where you, where, you, where you spoke about, you know, the money is over there and it's in a legal domain that we don't have access to, that sort of thing. It's funny because when we had a sort of handover, our sort of change of guard of labor, the outgoing shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, said, uh, yep, the new, uh, the new mm-hmm. shadow chancellor will be Annalisa Dodds. Uh, she's found the magic money tree. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, yes, she's... She's gonna, she's gonna, um, you know, she's gonna do the thing I want her to do, and he followed up with, and it's in the Cayman Islands. Like, oh, oh God. no! Oh, God. I was, I was gonna say, like, is she about to parade out like somebody from the EU? And it's like, we got her. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, that, that's the thing is that her sort of, she used to be a member of the European Parliament, and she was in the Treasury there, uh-huh. uh, specifically focusing on tax, uh, tax havens. Um, which right. of course are an important thing, but they have nothing to do with why you can't, why, you know, why your government isn't spending money. Correct. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, something that I think is really important that I want to bring this back to quickly, um, as you were, you know, kind of talking about this awful national sovereignty discourse, where like the money right now is over there in foreign institutions, and we need to bring it back here to domestic institutions. One of the things that I think is so powerful as as an intervention into the discourse around MMT, about the uni, and about these kinds of experiments with direct action to demand that all the institutions that issue money you know, create swap lines and accept their local IOUs in exchange for IOUs that are denominated in more and more public infrastructural denominations is that it doesn't premise institutions and the existence of money on power. It premises it on interdependence, right? It's like, this is really important to the input-output structure. And it naturally has leverage to point out how useful it is for it to keep running because everything is indirectly involved in producing everything else. And that structure is, without being too philosophical, I'm going to use the word ontology once, um, (laughs) I think that we can say that that's ontologically prior, that interdependence, there's never not going to be a global input-output structure, no matter how much, you know, they want to use rhetoric about bringing all the production back at home. We're never not going to be uh, interdependent with everybody else. And that interdependence is ontologically prior to all of this talk about sovereignty and and monetary sovereignty. And I think that as, as we try to turn MMT discourses in Western countries towards an expressly decolonial dimension... I think that problematizing what we actually mean by sovereignty itself is really important to fight back against this rhetoric. Yeah, for sure. You know, do you want to do you want to provide something? Do you want to like it, do you want to create? Is that is that what you want to do with you know the state in general? Mm-hmm. 
or are you going to take the Labour 2019 line? Are you going to are you going to finance twenty thousand new cops? Right. Like th- th- that's a direct sort of that's a direct example, I guess, which was widely derided at the time. Um, strangely, it was actually. I mean, it was from a sort of more anarchist skeptic perspective that that came. It wasn't from an MMT perspective necessarily, but obviously the same sort of philosophies are there. What what are you going to do with the state? And like, you know, one thing that comes to mind is like, you know, why don't councils have credit creation capacity? Yeah. So I'm not entirely clear. Basically, after 2010 and this like decade of Tory government, they've completely and utterly shredded how councils work Mm -hmm. and the sort of capacities they do have. Um, I don't believe they can issue bonds in that manner. Um, specifically so that conservatives can regain their autonomy over them yeah. so the central government can do that and that has been mm-hmm. it, it is probably one of the sort of most egregious examples of government sort of just corruption and hor- like evil is the only way I can really put it is that the conservative government before the election would basically cash starve Labour councils just to make it look like Labour weren't doing the job properly. And then make sure that Conservative councils were getting their extra little bung at the end of the election cycle. Mm-hmm. To be like, yeah, if you want more of that, like we can do that. And it's that autonomy, taking it away from the sort of... Again, taking it away from the people who are involved in that jurisdiction back to sort of literally the golden gates of Parliament. Right. And that's the analysis that I think is crucial for kind of rejecting the way that people sometimes think about MMT, which is like MMT is about national governments and states that can create money. But what the analytical structure of credit creation and like chartering credit creation implies is that we can actually push for local autonomy Mm -hmm. through the analog of credit creation charters. And so politicizing those local, more community-based uh, institutions can be situated within this sort of united front against um, against scarcity and against exclusion and against reaction. And I think the council fight, as you were just suggesting, is is one that just sort of refracts that whole potential future right in front of us. Yeah, there's actually, it's a shame that I'm not one, um, but the Scottish nationalist like campaign to make Scotland an independent country, they consistently have got this, they, they refer to it in their papers and whatnot as, you know, the currency question. What are you going to do about currency? Um, and it's definitely one that would be such a boon to that campaign if they did choose to go down that route. Because I think the current, uh, the current established position of the Scottish Nationalist Party is to uh, go independent and use sterling which I would not advise personally as someone watching from an MMT perspective, I would not advise that you do that. Or of course, um, leave the UK and join the European union and take the Euro again. Yeah. Really not sign on to Maastricht. Like, yeah. Yeah. Good. You know, do, do a Greece basically. Yeah. Um, not advise, advise things, but it is one of those things that if I think if the Scottish nationalist sort of movement, uh, did, did adopt a more MMT perspective of that sort of autonomy, of that fiscal autonomy, I think it would have a much better, much easier job of it. 100%. It's, it, it, that, that, it's a shame. If, if you can find a Scottish nationalist, uh, speak to them, because they're going to know a bit more about that. But it is, that's the thing that kind of jumps out to me in particular. Right. 
Um, I wanted to ask William, yeah, what what sort of things are you working on that potentially you wanted to plug? I know we've already plugged your band, but you're you're you know politically active, and I know you've been doing things with uh, with on housing relatively recently, and yeah, an just... issuer of music, an issuer of tweets, an issuer of of all kinds of superstructure. So. I am definitely an issuer of tweets. That's one hundred percent. I mean, so yeah. We, my band, Flirting, as I have mentioned, um, like we are doing stuff. We are still trying to keep active during lockdown, currently writing stuff. If you do want to follow that, please do. Um, the US is already very kind to us. Uh, we've, we played in New York last year. That was very fun. Wow, that's um, awesome. Last year, year before, 2018. No, 2019. <laughs> well, funnily, we played New York before we played Old York. So that was kind of embarrassing <laughs> for us. We haven't been north of our own country, but we have played North America. <laughs> You're just negging Northern England. <laughs> yeah, by the time Manchester gets us, it'll be worth it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, by all means do that. And then in terms of uh, political stuff, I am on the organizational committee of Labour Tenants United, which is basically just sort of, again, it's about regaining that autonomy. It's, it's, it's a tenants advocacy group within Labour to say, actually, we don't have to go by the sort of provisional rules of landlords. We like our housing is not determined by whether or not you've got your rent. We, we deserve to live here. And, um, you know, a lot of the sort of, it came from a cancel the rent campaign, which is still very much something I support. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's a very important sort of, uh, movement as well, especially Mm -hmm. in his current circumstances. I think that's all I'm doing. It's, it's, it's amazing. This lockdown has really made me distill my interests. There's gotta be something else I'm doing. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think there is. I've become boring. I've become boring. You've just, you've just become more of a poster. Yeah, I, I really have. I, I hate it, but I have posts. <laughs> I have, yeah, hundred percent. Well, I think we can all uh, relate to becoming boring throughout lockdown. Um, you know, considering I talked to a microphone for three hours by myself <laughs> a few weeks ago. So um, that was honestly. And nobody else I know could have done that. <laughs> You're filibustering your own podcast. I w- that is correct. I'm filibustering modernity. Um, <laughs> Fuck, what? <laughs> that should have been the title. Yeah, we, we definitely messed up with that yeah, one. Literally a day late, we could have named it that. But, oh, well. <laughs> I mean, check out check out the social review. I haven't done anything with them for a little while, but yeah. you're still, it's still 100% worth checking out social review. Um, I have an MMT article on there uh, about The Sims. It's been regarded as impenetrable and weird. You should definitely read that one. Yeah. That's right up our alley. <laughs> Oof, yeah. I read it. I read it back, and I'm. I, I do have that moment. Where I'm like, what? What am I talking about? But it it, it does make sense, and I, I think it. I think it's a worth a worthwhile. Read. Well, you're on the right podcast for for things that elicit yeah. that reaction. So. <laughs> <laughs>